Well, this is the last instalment of our four-week uh, stint in Zechariah. Um, it, it's flown by for me. I don't know if it's the same for you, but it's, uh, it doesn't seem any time at all ago that we were starting out on it. Now, this morning, when Richard was talking from Mark's Gospel, he made the comment uh, that he was moving from one section to another, in that Jesus was starting a new phase in his ministry. And we're in a similar situation with Zechariah this evening, because last week we came to the end of a section, and tonight we are moving into another section. So, um, Zechariah divides actually into three sections. Uh, the first one is uh, from chapters 1 to 6, and that section mainly consists of those uh, strange visions, that series of eight visions that were given to Zechariah in the course of one night. And on one level, the purpose of those visions had been to if you like, kickstart the rebuilding of the temple again, but throughout it was also very uh, evident there was a very distinct pointing beyond uh, the earthly Jerusalem and its physical temple to a city without walls, to a spiritual temple that was somehow linked to the, the future coming of the Lord's servant who was referred to as the branch. Now over the last three weeks we've covered the second section, uh, chapters 7 and 8, and throughout those chapters we saw the word of the Lord came to Zechariah again, uh, and it was to enable him to respond to a question brought by that delegation that came from Bethel about fasting to, to mourn the destruction of the temple. And we saw that the Lord's response was really to say, well, don't look back to the destruction of that old temple. Don't even take great delight in the temple that you're building now. Rather, look forward to the great thing that I'm going to do in the future. And you remember that uh, he painted that lovely picture of a, a Jerusalem in which the elderly would happily sit in the streets that were filled with children playing. Uh, and he spoke of fasting having turned to feasting. And he spoke of many people from many nations flocking to the Lord. Well, that would all come about, he said, because of one Jew. And chapter uh, 8, verse 23, tells us that the people would come to him and say, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Well, now we come to chapter 9, uh, and it marks uh, the beginning of the last section uh, of the book. And this section actually consists of two parts, and they're each referred to as an oracle. Or sometimes that's translated as a burden. So chapter 9 begins by saying, The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. Chapter 12 uh, begins by saying, The oracle of the word of Lord, the Lord concerning Israel. So we have these two oracles. Now the Hebrew word that's been translated as oracle 
is matter. And it can either mean a pronouncement or a heavy load, which is why it's sometimes translated as a burden. And I think elements of both of those senses are probably included here. Zechariah was certainly bringing pronouncements from the Lord, but they were also heavy loads to carry because they, um, although they wonderfully foretold both the first and second comings of Christ, they also contained messages of, of judgment uh, and destruction. Now notice that unlike the previous words from the Lord uh, that we've seen in Zechariah, we're not told when these oracles were given. So far in the book, everything has been meticulously dated. But we're given no dates from this point on. I tend to think that these oracles were given sometime after the rebuilding of the temple had been completed. And by then, there had been a, a serious uh, decline in the nation. For example, if you look at chapter 10, verse 2, we read, For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So the nation was in a, a very sad, aimless state. Zechariah's earlier prophecies have seemed to hold out so much hope for the future. But now the temple had been completed and the blessing that they expected hadn't yet been delivered. It hadn't yet delivered what they'd hoped for. And the people had grown impatient and they'd now turned to idols and the occult. You see, their hopes had still been centred on a physical temple and its material blessing and material blessings that they looked for. And no doubt to some extent they'd received those material blessings. But you see, material wealth and possessions don't satisfy. They seem so appealing when you don't have them, but as soon as you get them, they seem to, to let you down. They very quickly seem disappointing, and you find you need something else. You know, I imagine the situation was much like that of our, our own culture in recent decades. You know, for many years, many people had the misguided view of God as being that benign old man in the sky who would give them what they wanted. And eventually they realised that believing in this benign old man in the sky wasn't getting what they wanted at all. So they decided uh, that they'd better go out and get it for themselves. Uh, and our, our modern day go-getting, utterly materialistic uh, society uh, developed and came into, came into being. It grew to its uh, present all-consuming size. Yet you see, this material society that's quite rightly consigned the misconception of God into the, into the dustbin, um, finds that the wealth and the riches don't set satisfy any, any more than, than he did. Now, as one person put it, being rich doesn't make you happy. It just enables you to be miserable 
in the smarter part of town. <laughs> Some many turn to witchcraft and paganism and mystical Eastern religions and, and all the rest of it. You see, the fact is that man was created by God as a spiritual being who needs to relate to his creator. So materialism doesn't satisfy his real needs. Well, that's the sort of position that Judah had arrived in. They'd built this temple for the Lord, and they didn't think he'd rewarded them with the happiness they felt that they'd been led to expect. Materialism wasn't satisfying, and so they wandered into idol worship and dallied with fortune tellers. That's the context in which Zechariah was given these two oracles. And basically, in these two oracles, the Lord was saying, I told you to look for what I'm going to do in the future. I haven't done it yet, but you've given up already. You've written me off. Now, let me spell it out even more clearly. So we're going to start uh, by looking at the first nine verses uh, of chapter 9 this evening, where, where the first oracle uh, begins. And I apologise if at times I might seem to be given, giving something of a history lesson. Um, some might find that fascinating, and others might find it deadly boring. But if, if, if that's you, well, please stick with me, because hopefully we'll be amazed by the end at how wonderfully God works out, or has worked out, his purposes. So in these verses, the Lord started to show what he would do in the future. Three things he mentions that were to come. Judgment on the surrounding nations was to come. Protection of Judah was to come. And their king was to come. So firstly, let's see in verses 1 to 7, that judgment on the surrounding nations was to come. These verses are very much a catalogue of the surrounding cities and towns that had come under the Lord's judgment for various reasons. Uh, and between them, three different nations are represented. They weren't major players in world affairs at the time. They weren't like the imperial powers of Assyria or Babylon or Persia. They were much smaller players than that. But the message was that the word of the Lord was against them. You know, there might be minnows in world affairs, but they'd opposed and hindered the Lord's people and vaunted themselves against God so that they'd come under his judgment, uh, surely as the once mighty Babylon had. The fact is that God judges sin no matter who commits it. The very gentle, quiet sinner is every bit as sure uh, to come under God's judgment as an adult Hitler or a Saddam Hussein or a Yorkshire Ripper or Lucy Letby to be contemporary unless they come to faith in Christ. Well, the first nation that's represented in this list of cities that the word of the Lord was against is Syria. Uh, in verses 1 to 2, we read the oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. 
For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders it. Now, Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath are mentioned here. Um, for a long time, many critics insisted that there had been no such place as Hadrach, but it's now known that it was a town near Damascus. And these were all Syrian towns. Syria lay just to the north of Judah. Uh, in earlier days it had been known as Aram, and it had opposed Israel throughout the 9th and 8th centuries BC. The Lord hadn't forgotten that, and he was now saying that his judgment would yet come upon them. The second nation that's represented is Phoenicia. Um, verses, coming on in verse 2 and through to verse 4, we read Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Now, Tyre and Sidon were towns in Phoenicia, which was further south than Syria. It was to the west of Judah and uh, on the, the, the coast of the, uh, of the Mediterranean. Phoenicia had never opposed Israel militarily, but had posed a serious religious threat because they promoted the worship of Baal. Um, you'll remember how Ahab had built uh, a temple of Baal and encouraged Baal worship. And why was that? It was because he married Jezebel and she was a Phoenician and demanded that Baal should be worshipped. But beside that historical detail, see from uh, these verses that Tyre and Sidon were very self-assured and arrogant. We're told in verse 2, that they were very wise, that they trusted in their own ability. Told in verse 3, Tyre has built herself a rampart, or perhaps that's better translated as a, a stronghold. You see, Tyre was uh, almost an island, so it was virtually inaccessible by land, and it had been so heavily fortified that it was considered to be impregnable. Indeed, they withstood a five-year siege by the Assyrians. Later, they withstood a 13-year siege by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. So they were very confident uh, in the strength of their defences. They were tried, tested, proven. So besides their, their wisdom and their walls, uh, we read in verse 3 that they heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Now, they weren't just rich, that they were absurdly rich, that they were disgustingly wealthy. Uh, this great wealth came about because they were a great seafaring nation uh, and strategically placed as a centre for trade uh, between East and West. You know, in short, they had it made. It, it was inconceivable that anyone would ever bring them down. They trusted in their wisdom, their walls, and their wealth. They were so secure. However, in verse 4 we're told, But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, 
and she shall be devoured by fire. Everything they trusted in, everything they boasted of, would be taken from them, and that would be the Lord's doing. He was saying that he would achieve what no one else had been able to accomplish. Thirdly, uh, the Philistines are represented because uh, verses 5 to 7 we read, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall ride in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish in Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashkelon, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, they were all Philistine towns. And of course the Philistines had troubled Israel from way back, way back in the days of the judges, right through the days of David, and they were still doing so in Zechariah's day. We're told in Nehemiah 4, 7-8, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the beaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So the people of Ashdod were among those who troubled the returning exiles and hindered the rebuilding of the temple. Now the lands of the Philistines were just south of Phoenicia and in Zechariah's day they enjoyed safety and protection because invading armies couldn't get past Tyre. So in verse 5 we read, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. That's saying that if the people of Ashkelon see that Tyre has been destroyed, they'd be fearful because Ashkelon was just down the coast from Tyre and they'd be the next in line to face this army that was so mighty that it won an unimaginable victory. Next on from Ashkelon was Gaza. And we read that Gaza too shall abide in anguish. Then came Ekron, and we read Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. This is a picture of fear and utter panic in these cities uh, as they see the fall of the mighty fortress of uh, Tyre and this conquering army continuing its march towards them. They'd realised that once Tyre fell, they would all be set to fall like a series of dominoes. And this isn't merely speaking of them fearing what might happen. The Lord was saying that their worst fears would happen. The Lord would make it happen. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that Gaza would lose its king, Ashkelon would be deserted and foreigners would occupy Ashdod. And then we read, now we'll cut off the pride of Philistia. This is a, a foretelling of complete and utter defeat. Verse 7 says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. That, that's saying that it will bring to an end their idolatry that involved drinking blood and eating raw meat, which of course was an abomination in Israel. Yet look at uh, verse 7. 
B, it says, it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. It's perhaps not very obvious what that means. Um, what's but even though, what it's saying is that even though there would be such devastating carnage, carnage, there would be survivors. And it says that they would be a remnant for our God. I think that's a way of saying that some would find refuge and be accepted in Judah. Uh, and that idea, I think, is confirmed when we read, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. What's the point of likening Ekron to the Jebusites? Well, look at Joshua 15:63, where we read, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem <coughs> to this day. You see, the Jebusites were an example of a nation that had been absorbed into Israel. And that would be true of the survivors from Ekron too. So what a rousing... Um, accounts of the coming judgment upon Syria, Phoenicia, and the Philistines. But did it happen? It would have seemed inconceivable. But the answer is, yes it did. This is a most amazing foretelling of what happened about 200 years later with the coming of Alexander the Great. He only lived until the age of 32. By then he established an empire that stretched all the way to India and he'd never lost a battle. Uh, in the course um, of the trail that he blazed following the Battle of Issus in 333, Alexander marched south against Damascus. And he then went on to lay siege to Tyre and he destroyed it in seven months. Right? Babylonians couldn't do it in 13 years or whatever, whatever I said it was. Seven months, Tyre had fallen. The unimaginable had happened. He followed that by rampaging throughout Philistia, and the Philistines were never heard of again. Uh, most of them were slaughtered, and the survivors were absorbed into Judah, just as the Lord had said. So Zechariah 9, 1 to 7 actually actually describes that part of Alexander's campaign. Isn't that amazing? 200 years before the unimaginable happened, it was foretold. The Lord told it through Zechariah. Didn't only a remarkable fulfilment of what was foretold through Zechariah, it was also a remarkable preparation for what was yet to come. Back in verse 1, the ESV says, For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. Now that statement's undoubtedly true, but I don't think it's a correct translation of the text. The ESV footnote says that it could be for the eye of mankind, especially of all the tribes of Israel, is toward the Lord. And that's pretty much how the NIV translates it, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. As far as I can tell, that's a, a correct translation. I don't think it's saying that everyone would be consciously looking to the Lord. What it is saying is that when these great events took place, 
everyone would be aware that remarkable upheavals were happening, great things were taking place, and would be eager to see what would come next. And of course the reality was that the Lord was behind it all. The Lord was working out his purposes through it all. So as the people watched these amazing events unfolding, they were unwittingly looking to the Lord. What he was actually doing through Alexander was paving the way for the gospel. Yet another 200 years later, because of Alexander, uh, Alexander, Greek would become the universal language throughout the known world. So the New Testament would be written in Greek. And the Old Testament would be translated into Greek. And understood throughout the whole world. Because of Alexander, the Romans would be able to build their long straight roads through a vast empire in which there were no frontiers. So those writings could spread far and wide. The Lord was using Alexander to prepare for the coming of Christ and the subsequent spread of the gospel. It's amazing. That, that, that's wonderful. But the coming of Christ also required something else. And the Lord had that in, in hand as well. So secondly, let's look at verse 8 and see that protection of Judah was to come. In verse 8 we read, the Lord said, Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. That's a very literal translation. I think the NIV gives the right sense in saying, but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. The Lord was speaking of his people, Judah, and he was saying that when the nations round about were being destroyed, he'd be defending Judah. So that when this irresistible uh, enemy was falling upon the other nations, Judah would be spared. Judah would be kept safe. Now, of course, Judah had been overrun and taken captive in the past when the Babylonians attacked, but it wouldn't happen this time. Not again. That's what the Lord was promising. But once again, it doesn't really sound very likely, does it? You know, how could puny little Judah possibly avoid being crushed by the advance of Alexander's all-conquering army? But that is exactly what did happen. Just as the seemingly impossible overthrow of Tyre took place and the surrounding towns uh, took place, as the Lord had said, so Judah remained unscathed, exactly as the Lord had promised. When Alexander came rampaging through the region and Judah was right in the line of fire, for no obvious reason, Alexander left uh, Jerusalem unharmed. That's a fact of history. And it's absolutely amazing. Alexander was actually bearing down on Jerusalem and then had a change of heart. The only explanation is that the Lord guarded Judah as he promised he would through Zechariah. No wonder you think that verse 9 goes on to say, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. If such deliverance would clearly be a cause for great rejoicing. 
But you see, they weren't to rejoice merely because their enemies had been wiped out, and they weren't to rejoice merely because they'd been spared destruction. You know, as we, we come to the end of the, the, this section, uh, we look at verses 9 and 10, and we see that they were to rejoice greatly because their king was to come. See, verse 9 goes on to tell us why they were to rejoice. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mountain on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice this coming king was described as your king, in contrast to the kings of the other nations. He would be quite unlike any earthly king. He would be righteous. He would be described as having salvation. He would be humble. Can't think of any kings like that. He would be. Who was this coming king who would be righteous and having salvation and humility? Well, in the context of what we've already seen in Zechariah, God had promised to send the Messiah. Uh, in some ways, chapter 2, verse 10 is a parallel uh, to this verse. That there it said, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Who would come? Who, was, who is the, the one who is the Lord? That is one who is God himself. Uh, yet the previous verse had said, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. So the one who is the Lord would have been sent by the Lord of hosts. One who himself was God would have been sent by God. And you remember too that back in uh, chapter three, well, I'm sure you don't remember, but back in chapter three, verse eight, the Lord had said, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. And we saw that that must be referring to this one who is God, who was to be sent by the Lord of hosts. That seems to be confirmed in chapter 6, verse 12, which it was also, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And that passage went on to tell us more about him. In verse 13, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honour, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So although he's a man, he's also God. And what's more, we see that he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he'll be a king. Also, we're told that he'll be a priest on his throne. So he'll be a priest as well as being a king. The coming branch would be a king. And here in 9 verse 9 we're told uh, of the coming of that king. Tyre and Sidon and the Philistine cities would be no more. Garden would have, uh, Gaza would have lost its king. But Zion's king, the promised Messiah, was yet to come. And God's dealings with Judah and the other nations were paving the way for that coming and his coming was the hope of Judah. They would see from the example of Tyre that there's no hope in human skill or in powerful defences or in material riches. Neither was there hope in simply being Judah with his temple. The hope was to be in the coming king. But could they be sure that this promised king would come? 
Well, did judgment come upon Syria and Phoenicia and the Philistines, as the Lord foretold? Yes, it did. Was Judah spared and kept safe and Alexander came rampaging through the region, as the Lord had foretold? Yes, it was. So would this king come as the Lord promised? Of course he would. Of course he would. Who is this promised king and has he come? Well, notice verse 9 continues by saying of him that he'd be humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fold of a donkey. Sound familiar? The benefit of hindsight, it's very clear to see, isn't it? This was speaking of Jesus. Matthew 21 gives the account of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, and verse 4 says of that, this took place to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's abundantly clear, isn't it, that Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday was the fulfilment of this prophecy that God gave through Zechariah. So the man Jesus was the king whose coming was foretold in Zechariah 9 verse 9. He's the branch. He's the man who was God, sent by God. And continuing in Zechariah 9, we'll find that verses 9 to 10 tell, tell us a number of wonderful things about him. But that'll have to wait till next time, whenever next time might be. <laughs> We'll consider that next time. But for now, suffice it to say that he would be the one of whom all the promised blessings would be realised. Amen.